Jesus, as we turn our hearts and minds toward you today, as we enter into the story of what you've done for us, of who you are, I'm just again reminded I am not talking to the air. You are alive, breathing, moving, and by the power of your Spirit, you are in this room right now. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, and move among us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a seat. Don't you look fancy, all of you. My name is, by the way, Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm just really an honor to have you in the house today, and I can see that you're intimate out there, cozy with your neighbors. So you're going to leave with some new friends today, I think. That's good. On July 15, 1742, a Boston woman named Abigail Gilpin was found naked in bed with a man who wasn't her husband. Both Abigail and the man were tried and convicted, and the judge presiding over the case sentenced them to a public whipping, 20 stripes each. Now, in the mid-18th century, Events like this, whippings or hangings, they were public spectacles. You came with the intention to get drunk if you didn't arrive that way. After the criminal was beaten or hung, fights would break out among the onlookers, so it was basically a Cleveland Browns game. In 2013, Justine Sacco was flying to South Africa for the holidays, and while on a layover at Heathrow Airport, she sent a cringy tweet about race and AIDS to her roughly 170 followers on Twitter, and then she boarded the plane. During the 11-hour flight, Justine did not connect to the internet. During those 11 hours, Justine became the number one trending topic on Twitter. One user commented, we are about to watch this Justine Sacco get fired in real time before she even knows she's getting fired. And I I skipped over an expletive there. Now here's what Abigail Gilpin and Justine Sacco have in common. Their personal failures amass a mob of anger and outrage. Here's what else they share their personal failures are turned into a spectacle, a a bizarre form of entertainment, either for the drunken onlookers at Abigail's whipping or the angry hordes, for the angry hordes of Twitter users making memes of Justine's poor judgment. Now, lately, we've come to call this, this sort of incident, we've called them cancel culture. It's a relatively new term to describe a perennial question. What do we do 
with human misbehavior? What do we do with human misbehavior? In 1967, Marshall McLuhan wrote that our society would soon fall under womb-to-tomb surveillance, made possible by an electrically computerized dossier bank. He wrote this almost 60 years ago now. He said this would lead to one big gossip column that is unforgiving, unforgetful, and from which there is no redemption, no erasure of early mistakes. Unforgiving, unforgetful, no redemption, no erasing early mistakes. Are we talking about cancel culture or are we talking about God? God is always watching. He knows everything. He is everywhere at once. He is eternal. That means God sees all of time as one eternal now. So doesn't he already have us under the kind of womb-to-tomb surveillance that McLuhan saw coming? And for that matter, hasn't cancel culture been championed by Christians in the name of God? I mean, long before Disney employees were walking out of their jobs because the company wasn't progressive enough, conservative evangelicals and Baptists were protesting Disney for being too progressive. And wasn't Abigail Gilpin strapped to a post and whipped publicly, not only because what she did was illegal, but because what she did was a sin? When you and I lie awake at night and we feel the weight of our mistakes and our failures, when we experience this intuitive knowing that we have lived outside the boundaries that God has laid out for us, when we experience that kind of knowing, don't we wonder if this is just how God is? Don't we wonder if God is unforgetful, unforgiving, never erasing our mistakes, never offering us redemption? See, In a moment of cancel culture, we know what we do with human misbehavior. We know too well. But the deeper and more pressing question this morning is what does God do with our misbehavior? What does God do with human misbehavior? Let's turn and explore this. Let's turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. John 21, it's the final chapter of John's gospel, his biography of the life of Jesus. And at this point in the story, spoiler alert, Jesus is alive, okay? He is back from the dead. So we would expect to find the disciples, those 12 men, well, technically 11 now, but we would expect to find the disciples in whom he invested so much of himself, we would expect them to be out there doing the sorts of things that Jesus had taught them to do, living into the victory of Jesus' resurrection. But instead, we find them doing something else. Look with me at John 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, 
Nathanael from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I am going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. The promises of God have come true, y'all. Jesus has kept his word. Death is defeated. Satan and the power of darkness have been put to open shame. Sin has lost its power. And these men, who are Jesus' friends, these men in whom Jesus has invested more than three years of his life, they are right back to where Jesus found them three and a half years prior. They're back to fishing. Instead of boldly going forward, they've gone backwards. They've gone back to the predictability and safety of routine. As if they don't know how to receive the gift of a risen Jesus. For one of them, though, Peter, Peter may not want to receive the gift of the risen Jesus. In fact, Peter may have decided that he has disqualified himself from receiving that gift altogether. Hours before Jesus died, Peter denied even knowing him. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now, some of the disciples returned to fishing because they don't know how to receive the gift of a risen Jesus, but one in particular, Peter. Peter returns to fishing out of failure and defeat and condemnation. And so Jesus does what Jesus does best. He meets Peter in the place of his pain. These men have returned to what they know, and it turns out that they are not very good at what they know. After a whole night spent fishing, you, you fish at night in this moment in history, after a night spent fishing, these professionals have nothing to show for it. And someone on the shore has noticed. Verse 4 says, At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach. This is key. But the disciples couldn't see who Jesus was. He called out, Fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Now listen, two things are abundantly clear at this point in John's gospel. And the first is, that, is this. The disciples have seen Jesus before. This is not the first time that he has appeared to them since his resurrection. But the second thing that is absolutely clear is that they have no ability to recognize that it is Jesus who is, in fact, calling to them from the shore. Like a man sent to the basement to look for a can of beans that he cannot find, even though it's right in front of his face. <laughs> the other day, I was driving to the mall, and I was talking to Holden, who's on our team. In the middle of a sentence, I go, oh my word, Kmart is gone. I said, I said, I know it was there last week when I was here. He said, Kyle, it's been gone for like three months. <laughs> Sometimes you and I do not see what is right in front of our faces. And that's the case with these disciples. He is kind. He is gracious. He offers the fishermen some help. He says, throw your net out on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net 
because it was so many fish in it. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gracious. Jesus, I think, is also just a little bit cheeky. Because as you see, as the disciples haul in a huge number of fish, I mean a ridiculous number of fish, the light bulb goes off. The switch flips. This has all happened before. You see, when these men met Jesus for the first time, when he called them to be with him, it was on a morning just like this one. They had spent all night fishing and had nothing to show for it. So there's Jesus on the shore, and he calls out to them and says, go out into the deeper water and put your net onto the other side of the boat. And they do, and they have so many fish, they cannot even haul it in. Jesus meets these disciples who have returned to the safety of routine and predictability, and he beats them in the place of their first love. That first place where he called their name, The action picks up from here. John, always a mystic, always seeing what others don't see. He finally cries out, it's the Lord. And Peter, always quick to act, leaps into the water. And the text is pretty clear that he's mostly naked. He just can't even wait to get his clothes on, to swim to the beach, to rush to see Jesus, kind of leaving everybody else with all of the work to do, okay? Um, And when they finally arrive on the shore, the text says this, when they got there, They found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire. I like the fact that Jesus already has some fish cooking. It's as if Jesus is saying, fishing isn't really all that hard, guys. (laughs) In fact, in the Gospels, these professional fishermen, they never catch a single fish without the help of Jesus. So they eat their breakfast there on the beach. And when the meal is done, Jesus turns to Peter. Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus hours before he died. And in my mind's eye, I can see Jesus' eyes meet Peter's eyes. And I can see Peter heave a sigh. And think to himself, oh boy. Here we go. And then Jesus asks a question in verse 15. It says, After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. (sighs) Peter's thinking, it's behind me. We did it. We had the conversation. We can move on. Wrong. Because Jesus repeats the question in verse 16. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. We're not done yet. This is turning into like a conversation with my toddler. He asked the question again. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And verse 17 says that Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. 
I wonder what's going through Peter's mind as he's sitting through this questioning. I wonder what's going through Peter's mind, his heart. Is it, is it shame, annoyance, frustration? I wonder if Peter was thinking that Jesus was about to cancel him. But then the smell from the charcoal fire hits his nostrils, and the three questions that Jesus asks suddenly make sense. You see, all of this, all of this is a setup. In the early hours of Good Friday, the day when Jesus was crucified, Peter denied knowing Jesus not once, not twice, three times. He did this while sitting around what John calls a charcoal fire. A few hours later, Peter was nowhere to be found when Jesus struggled for his last breath. And John is very specific. It's very specific. It's a charcoal fire by which Peter denies Jesus. And that specific word for a charcoal fire appears twice, twice in John's gospel, just twice. And the first time is right here when Peter denies Jesus. The second time... The second time is right here when Peter and Jesus have breakfast around a charcoal fire. Jesus has recreated the exact conditions of Peter's failure. He's recreated the exact conditions of Peter's failure, not for Peter's cancellation, but Peter's redemption. Jesus takes Peter back to the painful memory of denying Jesus. And Jesus walks with Peter through that memory. And as Jesus deals with that painful memory, Peter is restored. And suddenly the details of Peter's failure become the raw material that Jesus uses to work transformation in Peter's life. Far from being canceled, Peter is restored, redeemed. And as he is, we get a glimpse of how God deals with human misbehavior. Y'all, God is not a God of cancellation. He is a God of redemption. Amen. Do it. We live in a cultural moment so cold, so unforgiving. Even a slip of the tongue, something that you posted on social media when you were 15, it can ruin your life forever. And so we wonder, is God the same way? But Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Our cultural moment has a long memory from womb to tomb surveillance of everything we've ever said or of everything we've ever done. But we've been under that kind of surveillance since before time began, not to mention when Twitter got its start. God is all-knowing. He knows every hair on your head. All of your days are written in his book. And yet he says, I will forgive their wickedness. And listen, I will never again remember their sins. We live in a cultural moment that carefully records all of our wrongs. And maybe, maybe you just think that God is the same way, carrying with him in heaven a little list of everything we've ever done wrong. But the scriptures say that Jesus canceled the record of charges, the record of wrongs, and took it away by nailing it to his cross. 
Over breakfast with the fish Jesus provided, Peter is forgiven. He is restored. He is redeemed. And Peter discovers to his surprise and our delight that when faced with human misbehavior, God is not a God of cancellation, but a God of redemption. Writing about cancel culture in the New York Times Magazine, Lagaya Michon writes, it's interesting for all the fear that cancel culture elicits, it hasn't succeeded in toppling any major figures. High-level politicians, corporate titans, let alone institutions. This is why God has so little interest in cancellation. There's only so much that cancellation can do. But redemption, redemption carries with it infinite possibilities. Redemption recreates the conditions of our failure, of our painful past, and it makes those difficult experiences the raw material for our transformation. Jesus looks at Peter across a charcoal fire and he asks him three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He asked Peter three questions. One question for each of Peter's denials. And let's be clear. Let's be very clear about this. Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. He is fully aware that Peter loves him. But do you know who isn't sure if Peter loves Jesus? Peter. These questions aren't for Jesus' benefit. They're for Peter's benefit. They're to help Peter know that Peter loves Jesus. And did you notice, did you notice that never once, not even a little bit, does Jesus mention Peter's failure? He doesn't even bring it up. You see, when we fail, when we screw up, when we make mistakes, we assume that Jesus wants to have a conversation about our failures. He doesn't. When we want to have a conversation about our failure, Jesus wants to have a conversation about our love. Jesus wants to have a conversation about our love and where our love will lead us. Jesus doesn't have three questions for Peter. He also has three directives, instructions, feed my lambs care for my sheep, feed my sheep. After spending those years with Jesus, Peter was aware that there was a weighty and significant kingdom calling on his life. He was aware that God had big plans for him, Peter was. But Peter decided that because of his threefold denials, that calling had been revoked. And so Peter returned to fishing. Listen, some of you in the sound of my voice, in fact, all of you in the sound of my voice, God has wonderful plans for your life. He's placed a profound kingdom calling on you. And I'm talking to the Christians here for a minute because somewhere along the line, you screwed up. You failed. You denied Jesus. And so you've benched yourself, you've taken yourself out of the game, and you've gone back to what you know, assuming that Jesus 
has revoked that calling on your life. I can't help but imagine what Satan is thinking during this. It's an interesting thing, I know, but I can't help but imagine what Satan is thinking. Because you see, with Jesus back from the dead, Satan has discovered his power is flimsy at best. In fact, Paul says that Satan and the powers of darkness were put to open shame. So there in his embarrassment, I can't help but wonder if Satan is nursing his wounds, knowing that if nothing else, he got Peter out of the game. Peter, who Jesus said would be the foundation of the church. Satan's thinking, I may not have stopped Jesus, but at least I've stopped the church. At least I've got Peter out of the game. And Satan can't wait to hold Peter's failure over his head for the rest of his life. Every time Peter tries to inch toward Jesus, Satan's there at his shoulder. Remember, remember that time you screwed up so bad? But while having breakfast around a charcoal fire, even this small victory is taken back. As Peter is forgiven and restored and redeemed and even commissioned once again into the surface of Jesus. Peter is set free from Satan's lies and condemnation to step into his calling once again. And this threefold call, feed my sheep, care for my flock, it's what Peter spends the rest of his life doing. In fact, he gets so busy doing it that Peter, the foundation of the church, barely even contributes to the New Testament. And when he does, it's two of the shortest letters and the most poorly written letters in the New Testament, as if Peter was like filling it out and throwing it together 30 minutes before the deadline. College students in the room, you know what I'm talking about? Peter's too busy. He's too busy shepherding the flock of God. He's too busy leading God's people. He's too busy stepping into the kingdom calling that Jesus gave him. So busy that at the end of his first letter, he says, I, as a fellow shepherd of the flock, say to you, shepherd the flock of God among you. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. I'm not talking to the skeptics and the cynics in the room. Just mute yourself for a minute. Christians, hear me. Those of you that have walked away after denials and betrayals and failures and mistakes, Jesus this morning is calling you to get back in the game. Jesus is calling you to get back in the game because he's not a God of cancellation. He's a God of redemption. He wants to commission you this Easter once again into his service. Because listen to me, listen to me. As Peter hears this call to shepherd Jesus' sheep, Peter discovers this. Are you with me? The very conditions in which we fail, the places of our wounding, rejection, and hurt, that is the fertile soil from which our truest calling springs. I'm going to say it again. The places of our pain and wounding and rejection and betrayal and hurt, that's the fertile soil from which our truest calling springs. Jesus isn't interested in cancellation. He is fascinated with, obsessed by Redemption, because redemption has infinite possibilities. Now, for the skeptic and the cynic, the overwhelmed, the burnt out, here you are. 
on Easter Sunday, like any other Easter Sunday. You've gone to Penny's. You've wrestled your kids into their outfits. You've, and you've taken the picture and endured the tantrums of your small children to get the picture. Now, if you're a parent of a teenager, you've endured a quiet sulking, which is no less a tantrum. I wonder if you are here today wrapped in the cocoon of safety and predictability. Just checking off another Easter to keep your parents happy or your siblings happy or your children happy. Hoping that you can just get in under the wire and leave it at that. And some of you find this experience excruciating because you are living with the overwhelming weight of failure. The overwhelming burden of pain. You may not have expected it, but Jesus is here in our midst. You found the can of beans, my friend. It's blinking you in the face. Even if you can't see it, like Peter and the disciples, even if you can't see him clearly, he is here. He is among us. And he is here not not to cancel you, but to redeem you. Not to harm you, but to heal you. Not to scorn you, but to save you. You see, to know Jesus is to know the healer. It's to know his joyful presence in the midst of life's pain and wounds, in the midst of our denials and betrayals and rejections. Next week, we're going to begin a nine-week series, teaching series in our gatherings, all about the healing presence of Jesus in the midst of our lives, exploring at a deeper level what Peter experiences here. You see, did you notice that Peter, what needed healed was not his body. What needed healed was something at a deeper level. What needed healing were his memories. What was needed was the healing of his soul, of his heart of his emotions, what, he, what Peter needed was inner healing. And that's what Jesus brought to him that morning after a night spent in pointless fishing. I want to invite you back next Sunday as we begin that journey. But if nothing else, hear me today, right now, in this moment, Jesus is calling your name. He is calling out to you in the midst of failure and pain. And here's what Jesus is wondering. He's just wondering if you'd like to have breakfast. In fact, he's asking if you'd like to have breakfast a lot. A standing appointment for breakfast and lunch and dinner and all of the moments in between. He, he He's asking if you want to be with him to take on the easy yoke and the light burden that he offers. He's asking this morning if you'd like to set down your nets and your failures and your pride and your position. 
And he's wondering if you, like Peter, would just jump in the water and swim to him this morning to have breakfast with him today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. Here at Regen, one of our values is that we don't just want to hear God's word, but we want our lives to be transformed. We want to be different. And man, if there's ever a Sunday that we want to experience that transformational power, it's this Sunday, right, when we're celebrating his resurrection. So I just want to ask a couple questions, and the band will play. We'll have some time to just reflect and to listen and to think. But my, my first question is, if you are a follower of Jesus, what's keeping you from that kingdom call? Is it a wound that needs healed? Is it maybe the courage to take that step that you feel like he's inviting you to? So just invite you to ask the Father about today. Let him get your attention and see what comes to your mind as you pray about that and think about that. My second question is, if, if you're here and you're cynical or skeptical today and you're just not sure what you think about this Jesus, I want to invite you in this time to do something really crazy. I want to invite you to ask him to speak to you. And that response may mean um, your heart might beat faster, you might, um, something might come to mind. Um, but here's, here's what scripture says, that if we seek him, we'll find him. And so I want to invite you to, to take that step today. Um, we're going to take a moment of silence, I'll pray, um, and then after that, the oversight team will be in the back, and we'd love to pray for you if you need prayer for any kind of healing or even just the courage to maybe take that step. We'd love to pray with you. So let's just take a moment and, and invite the Father to speak to us. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to live a perfect life, die a sinless death, and be raised to life so that we could know you, so we could be healed, so that we could be transformed, so that we could have a purpose that outlasts ourselves. Jesus, I pray for those in this room who aren't sure about you, or maybe here because they have to be, or maybe here because they're interested. I just pray that you would speak to them today an undeniable voice that speaks love over them, that speaks value over them, that speaks your heart for them, and that they would respond to your question of, do you love me with yes? Jesus, we, um, we thank you that you have come to bring healing, that you've come to bring hope. And I just pray over these brothers and sisters in this room, over those joining us online, that this week we would live in the power of your resurrection that we would live lives transformed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?